Well, hello there, and welcome to the good old days of radio show. This is John Tefteller, your host. We are starting a new series. It's Thursday, and we normally do kind of weird um, horror-slash-science-fiction type shows. We're going to get close to that in a couple of these, but most of them are going to be a little bit more just straightforward murder mystery type drama. We're going to do a 10-part series on some of the best shows from the Suspense radio series. We've played a lot of Suspense shows over the last year and a half, a lot of my personal favorites. So in order to do this show, and we have a special guest for this show, and we'll have that special guest for all 10 episodes, uh, but in order to do this one, I relied on other people. I did not pick any of these shows. Our special guest picked the majority of them, and producer Daniel picked a few. And I was familiar with a few of them, but not all of them. But I did my homework, and I have listened to all of them. And so I can somewhat intelligently comment. Let me say from the outset that I have heard a lot of the 20-year run of suspense. Most of the ones I heard were from the Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters Collection in Hollywood when I was a part-time volunteer there back in the mid 1970s to about the late 1980s when I left for Oregon. And Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters had a long, long run of suspense, original transcription discs, and CBS master tapes. They did not have every show. Uh, a lot of the very early ones were missing, and then randomly throughout the run, other shows were missing. And sometimes I think the other shows that were missing were m simply because somebody at some point when the transcription discs were still at C uh, KNX Radio in Los Angeles, when they were still there in the 50s and 60s before they were transferred to what we call PPB or Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters in the mid-60s, I think people just walked off with one here or there. Or they had a particular one that they wanted, and so they walked into KNX and walked out with it. Because every once in a while, one will show up that was not there, and it always tends to show up from somebody who says, well, I, you know, I, I got it from KNX years ago. <laughs> so they, hmm. they kind of <laughs> were available there to walk off with, and some of them walked away. In any case, I've listened to just about all the ones that were at Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters, but it's been a long, long time. I picked out my favorite ones back then, and I made transfers of them back then, which I still have, but I did not transfer every single show, and there were a lot of them that I really don't remember at all. Uh, but uh, anyway... My personal interest in suspense tends to be the more weird monster-type shows rather than the straightforward how-to-commit-the-perfect-murder type show. But the ones that we have chosen for this 10-week series are all excellent, excellent, well-written scripts. When I was listening to them in the last couple of days, it really uh, hit home with me about how good they were and how, how well-written they were and how... how well-directed the program was, and I'm now 64 years old, and I remember hearing these back when I was in my 20s, and they had a, a bit of a different impression on me back then than they do now. So I guess times change, and as you age, you, you get more mature, maybe, or you learn things, whatever. All right, so anyway, that's my background on suspense, 
And I don't want to go on too long here because we have a special guest who I will now introduce. And this special guest will, as I said, be with us for each of these broadcasts for the next 10 weeks. So he knows way more about suspense than I do. And it's, it's as if it's me talking about the Marx Brothers because uh, this man can go into the weeds as deep as you want to go and has as much knowledge about suspense as anyone on the planet, probably, um, and way more knowledge than I do. So I'm going to start shutting up soon, and he's going to do most of the talking. And the man I'm talking about is Dr. Joe Webb. Dr. Joe Webb has been collecting classic radio programs since high school when he first heard the Shadow in 1972 on WRVR-FM in New York City. Now, that's similar to me because I first started collecting radio programs when I was in high school as well. Uh, Dr. Webb was soon involved in the 1970s and early 80s Friends of Old Time Radio Convention, which was a... um, a large convention held on the East Coast. I never attended because I have always lived on the West Coast and never traveled East for that, but it was a big deal. I'm not sure if it's still going on. Family and career became priorities, as they did with me, and uh, I kind of wandered away from old-time radio in 1989 when I moved to Oregon, and I guess Dr. Webb here wandered away from radio for a little while with his family and career. In the early 2000s, he returned to the hobby to find a brand new and thriving digital world and became active in old-time radio researchers and Cobalt Club. Not sure what Cobalt Club is, but I guess he'll tell us in a minute. His particular obsession, as I alluded to earlier, is the radio program Suspense, which was on the air for 20 years. He has been documenting the series' production history and collects all versions of the radio show recordings, including the network broadcast, the East and West Coast broadcast, because they did it twice, the AFRS, or Armed Forces Radio Service versions, air checks, rehearsals, home recordings. He wrote a book, as he surely should, after all that knowledge, The Suspense Collector's Companion. The Suspense Collector's Companion is the title, and it is available from Jeff Bezos and Amazon.com. So we can all continue to make Jeff Bezos richer. Uh, Just go to Amazon.com and order your copy of The Suspense Collector's Companion. He is currently working on other books about Uh, The radio series Casey Crime Photographer, the radio series The Big Story, and I guess a project to restore the mid-60s series Theater 5. Is that Canadian? I think so. I don't know. No, no, it's it's U.S. Well, there he is, jumping in already. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know Theater 5 at all, so maybe I'm missing something here. Yeah, well, we have to do Theater 5 one day on on the podcast. Okay, well, I'm I'm game for it as long as they're good. Sure. Um, In 2019, Dr. Joe, is that what you want me to call you, by the way, Dr. Joe? That's fine, yeah. Okay. Received Spurdvac's Lifetime Award. Now, (laughs) probably a huge percentage of this audience just went... Spurdvac? What's a Spurdvac? Right. Um, well, <laughs> I joined Spurdvac in 1975. I became their archives librarian shortly thereafter, and I'm still a member after all these years. Spurdvac stands for the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio, Drama, Variety, and Comedy. 
and is based in Los Angeles, although a whole lot has happened since I left Los Angeles back in 1989, and Spurdvac has kind of gone global, and so now we don't just yeah. have board of directors in Los Angeles, we have board of directors all over the place, and they've moved into the 21st century while I'm still back in the 18th century, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, anyway, um, there you can find more information about Spurdvac, and if you decide to join that, you certainly will get your money's worth because it's very cheap to join and they have lots to offer so there right, and they just they just started the brand new streaming station too oh streaming okay yeah. uh, wow all this modern technology it's not not where i like to be but sometimes it's good so we'll, we'll see all right so uh he's already chimed in here a bit but dr joe welcome to the good old days of radio show and thanks for being here well thank you very much it's it's an honor well, good. We do have a lot of listeners, apparently, and they, they, they keep growing every week, so we must be doing something right here. I know we're presenting really top-quality uh, sound, and that tends to attract people because there's a lot of bad-quality sound floating around out there. But since I have lots of original tapes from original masters, uh, they, the shows we present on this this program tend to be very, very high quality and very easy to listen to. You don't have to strain and stress and uh, try to make out what they're saying. You can actually hear it crystal clear most of the time. Uh, all right. So, Suspense, give us your, however much background you want to, on how Suspense came to be. Because People have heard them on this, this podcast and other places, but I don't think too many people, unless they've read your book, and of course they can certainly go do that, but in, in lieu of that, give us a di digested version of how suspense came to be um, and just some background on it. Well, suspense was on the air from June 1942 to September 1962, uh, one of the longest-running programs on radio uh, that wasn't a political program like uh, Meet the Press, which is still uh, on radio as well as television. Um, it uh, survived all kinds of changes to radio technology, recording technology, social change, economic change. And it was a very robust anthology series that presented some of Hollywood's greatest stars in the 1940s. And then in the 1950s and 1960s, when many of those stars went to television or to do other things, it was produced by some incredible radio talents, both uh, behind the microphone and also in the production studio. And it was uh, a, a broad mix of uh, mysteries, horror, as you mentioned, occasionally. But a lot of the stories were told in first-person narrative which is a very compelling kind of uh, presentation on radio. Uh, many people who've heard War of the Worlds, that's, that's where first-person narrative really gained a lot of strength with, with Orson Welles, who had a very, very big influence on the direction of suspense. But we can go into that sometime later. Uh, some of the suspense story starts in 1940 with a CBS producer named Charles Vanda, who is the actual creator of suspense and he envisioned that there was going to be a big budget uh mystery series uh, kind of more on the um the british style of, of mystery and they had a program on cbs where they would test out many of these concepts called forecast 
And uh, every week, the East Coast CBS people and the West Coast CBS people will be responsible for producing programs that they were considering uh, putting on on a more full-time basis. And they gave the show a very uh, good-sized budget, unlike a lot of other audition programs, what we might call pilots uh, in the in the TV uh, era. And uh, they put on a show called The Suspense, or planned a show uh, called Suspense. But Vanda wanted the big name uh, for the show, and he always had an idea that Alfred Hitchcock would be the perfect person to be leading uh, this particular series. The series had had no name. And uh, Vanda and Hitchcock met, and Vanda told him about the kind of suspense series that he wanted. And Hitchcock said to him, well, why don't you just call it suspense? So that's how suspense got its name. Uh, One of the ideas of having a a big-name Hollywood producer on it was that you would find a big-name sponsor. And uh, so they produced the pilot on forecast. They they promoted it very heavily uh, among potential sponsors. But unfortunately, the show was not good. Hitchcock did much of uh, what they wanted him to do. He appeared at rehearsals. He actually was a very big contributor to the production and direction. But then his schedule changed, and he had to go back to New York City. Can I interrupt you and ask you how many sure. shows... Mr. Hitchcock actually supervised. Do you know that? Well, none. Oh, <laughs> okay. Because it was he was just going to be involved in this one in person, and then then his schedule changed. Oh, so he was just and involved with the pilot then. Just involved in, in, involved with the pilot. Yes. Oh, okay, okay. I, I didn't. And, and the pilot get that was clear. one of his favorite stories, The Lodger, which he had made a film of uh, many years before. So that's one of the reasons he was interested in doing it. So okay. they they put on they they start working on, on the program and the the idea would be that uh, they would present the story and then not really have a conclusion and then Hitchcock would moderate a discussion about how how the story would end. Now in the movie The Lodger, there's no real conclusion to it. You're left to to wonder who who actually is the the, the killer there. But on, on radio, it, it really wasn't going to work. And the fact that Hitchcock wasn't there, they had a British actor named Edmund Stevens imitate Hitchcock, was made all the worse because <laughs> Hitchcock was listening in, an, in a New York studio with a radio critic. And when they heard Hitchcock's voice, what they assumed Hitchcock's voice, coming over the network feed, the, the writer looked at Hitchcock and said, this is kind of strange. Can you explain that? <laughs> uh, so the combination of uh, people questioning Hitchcock's commitment to do a series, uh, that the model for that was, go- was Cecil B. DeMille for Lux Radio Theater. He was there every single week. And w- Hitchcock was traveling on, on when, when they're trying to take their first step toward creating a series. Oh, that didn't sit well with a lot of people. And many of the potential advertisers just got scared away by this particular suspense concept. So in in a lot of ways, I don't even consider this audition to be part of the suspense series. Well, we're it not was, we're not playing that. That does that exist? No. I think it does. 
It does, and it, yeah. and it's one of those things. It exists in in wonderful sound. So <laughs> it's almost like you know going to a restaurant that's that's terrible and complaining about the portion size. You know. So. <laughs> well, I don't um, think I've ever heard it. Um, I guess one day I'll I'll give it a listen, and if it's terrible, we won't run it on this show. But we'll see. <laughs> well, um, Vanda did not want to give up, so he kept trying to press. He said he admitted the mistake. And that uh, they still wanted to have this kind of mystery program. So there was a young uh, director and producer, uh, just general staffer named William Spear, working at CBS at that time in New York. And he and Vanda believed in the show and kept making presentations to the CBS executives. Uh, eventually, they broke through and they said, yes, you can go ahead and produce the series. It's going to run for a summer. And then, you know, don't expect anything more than that. So they scheduled it for May of 1942 and they kept canceling it. And they kept putting something else in its slot. And eventually it, it began to air on June 17th, 1942 with a story called the burning court. And uh, as it went through the summer, it started to pick up some listenership but did not find a sponsor so for the first time in its and what wouldn't be the last in its history suspense was going to be canceled uh, so uh during that summer uh another thing happened charles vanda got called into the service and he was uh asked to help create the armed forces radio service so that's one of the things that he did in his uh, wartime service and William Spear was put in charge of it. Um, so the, the series ended in September, 1942. Uh, and from some of the letters and from the feelings that some of the CBS executives had, they decided to go ahead with the program. Okay. I got to ask that, you a question. That, that brings us up, up until around this episode, and we can talk about some of the other history as we uh, go okay. through some of the That's others. fine, but I have a question. Um, sure. September 1942, Orson Welles did The Hitchhiker on Suspense, which I think is one of the all-time greatest performances. Right. Did that now, he, occur before it was canceled and or renewed or after? Well, it's, it's an interesting um, situation because the Hitchcock, Hitchhiker was actually a repeat because he had done it in 1941 uh, on the Lady Esther show. Right. And I don't think that one exists, but... Um, it, it, it does. I do, oh, it does. I do have okay. a, a, a copy. There's been an excerpt of it for a while. Okay. Um, and one of, the, one of the funny things about the suspense one is that uh, Hitchcock was... He would, he would put jokes in some of his programs. Um, and so uh, if you listen to that episode and as you go through toward the end... Uh, he is alone on a country road, and you hear the noise of cows in the background. Right. And the, the line in the script is, I was utterly alone. <laughs> I, uh, I guess I missed that one. I know, I know that Hitchcock <laughs> well, if, had if a rip. listen to other presentations of it. They don't, uh, they don't have the noise of the cows in the background. Oh, but, 
Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I know Mr. Hitchcock had a very weird, strange sense of humor. So that. Uh, <laughs> well, well th- this was Wells do- doing that. Oh, and oh it was. His own <laughs> sense of humor. It was Orson Wells uh, putting the utterly line in there. No, okay. The utterly line, yes. So, and, again, um, do we know if that show, The Hitchhiker, was before or after it was renewed? Um, I, I think they were leaning toward a renewal at that time because that was in the uh, first week of September, 1942. Right. And there was a suspense did not air the week before or the week after that. Um, but I believe that they, that's where they were leaning toward. And, uh, it wasn't finalized until after the performance of, uh, 100 in the dark in, in, in September, a couple of weeks later, and 100. Hundred in the Dark has a has an interesting little history to it because that was the last show prior to them starting their new season. Uh, so in a, in a sense, suspense may have still been technically canceled at that time. And then years later, in 1947, the last show of the Roma era was One Hundred in the Dark, and the show was definitely canceled at that time in 1947 yet came back so it almost makes me wonder if in 1947 they were considering uh 100 in the dark to be a good luck charm that they would if they ran that they got renewed in 1942 they'll get renewed again in 1947. but anyway that's that's all that is there superstition in the entertainment business I guess there is. I wouldn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So the first one that we are going to feature, uh, uh, one out of ten here, uh, is from, okay, I'm reading backwards, 11-10-1942. That would be then after it was definitely renewed. Right. This is is the first renewed season for suspense, uh, and and they were going to make a go of this, and they, they really wanted to convince people that this was a permanent show and that they were looking for a sponsor. Yes. Okay. And the writer for this particular episode is John Dixon Carr. Now, I'm not a particularly um, big literary person, so I don't really know who John Dixon Carr was, except I know him as somebody who wrote some plays for suspense. That I know. Yeah. But do you have further information on John Dixon Carr? Well, well John Don, John Dixon Carr was a very, very popular mystery writer. Okay. Very successful. Um, a lot of people thought that he was British, but he was actually born in Pennsylvania and uh, lived in Britain for 10 years and got, and got married there. Um, and then moved back uh, to to the states. Um, when he moved back, that was at, at the beginning of World War II, and he was called back to the states because he was going to be drafted. Uh, so uh, people had known his work through the 1930s on a, on a literary basis, and suspense hiring John Dixon Carr was a really really big deal we don't we don't think of that now but that was one of the things that they were looking for to ensure the credibility of the program now at the same time suspense was uh running in 1940 uh, through 1943 there was a program in great britain uh, or the U- more accurately the uk called appointment with fear so they were using the same scripts that suspense had uh, over on the BBC for that particular series. Unfortunately, uh, it was wartime, as everyone knows in the U- in the UK, 
And so many recordings don't exist because they needed materials that would have been used for discs and other other things for for the purposes of uh, of, of the war. Um, but uh, there's a couple of uh, suspense episodes that are missing that somehow we have uh, copies of the appointment with uh, with fear uh, okay. versions. Of so them. there are a but few John episodes. Dixon, Yes, John Dixon Carr was was a was a really really big deal, uh, but this was the tradition that Vanda wanted to have of the drawing room mystery where where there's a lot of talking, uh, there's not a central focus on one character as a hero or 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 a villain, but they work their way through a mystery. Um, so if you're familiar with a lot of British mysteries, that's the format that suspense had at this time. A lot of collectors don't particularly like those kinds of stories. They prefer the way suspense changed after uh, Carr left the series to where it became that first person narrative stories about people in trouble and you're hearing it from their perspective and the big orchestra and, and those things that really didn't get going until the middle of 1943. But this is not to take anything away from this script. I mean, this, this is a, a good script for, for sure. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. We're, we're saying this, but we haven't told the listeners what this is yet. So I guess we can is, do that. This is a, this is a story called, will you make a bet with death? Um, and it is a um, about an uncle getting his uh, nephew uh, making a bet twenty five thousand dollars that he would not survive for the next six months. So if so, if you think there's somebody always behind you, you know the the, the paranoia thing, you may actually be right. <laughs> yeah, when I listened to this, that was that was my impression of it right away. It's like, boy, this is great for people with paranoia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those great race against time programs. And I don't want to yes. say much more about it. We're going to play it now. And then we'll have a few words to say at the end. And then we'll uh, dismiss for this particular episode. And uh, Dr. Webb will join us again. But anyway, okay. here we go. From November 10th, 1942, here is Will You Make a Bet with Death? The thrill of the nighttime, the hushed voice and the prowling step. The stir of nerves at the ticking of the clock. The rescue that might be too late. The crime that is almost committed. Mystery and intrigue and dangerous adventures. We invite you to enjoy stories that keep you in... Suspense. Can a man stake his life against $25,000? Can another and cleverer man track him down like a hunter, stalking his prey and kill him within five hours? Can you make a bet with death and win? 
For suspense, tonight we present Will You Make a Bet with Death by John Dixon Carr. Pony Island on a summer day. There's the beach, bright colored with bathing suits. There's the boardwalk, all straw hats and summer dresses. There's the Ferris wheel and the roller coasters. There is all humanity eating hot dogs and having a good time. And over there, beyond that souvenir shop, is the haunted mill. Get into a little boat. You float through a narrow tunnel into the dark while witches scream. But that fools nobody, does it? There couldn't be any real terror. Could there? While the bands are playing and the crowd goes by and... Attraction. It hurts me to see you stand there and miss this. Only ten cents, one dime, the tenth part of a dollar to go through the old haunted mill and get the thrill of your life. An overstatement, if you ask me. One uh, ticket, please. Did you say one ticket, lady? That's right, one ticket. What's the thrill? A big pardon, lady. I said, what's the thrill? Lady, the gals who come here with their boyfriends don't have to ask that. Ten cents, please. This way and mind the gate. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Get your ticket for the old haunted meal where ghosts will walk and corpses... Give me some tickets. Uh, Hurry. Just a minute, young fella. I know you want to get into the old haunted meal, but there's plenty of time. How many tickets? I don't know. You better give me ten. Ten tickets? Do you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? Here's a young fella who likes the old haunted meal so much, he buys ten tickets. Don't call everybody's attention. Listen, I've got a better idea. Whatever boat comes after mine, yeah, I'll give you an extra dollar to send that boat through empty. Now, what's the matter, son? The, the cops ain't after you, are they? No, 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 no. It's nothing like that. Will you do it? Well, money talks, young fellow. Okay, go ahead. Isn't there an empty boat here? Well, really? You've got such a great objection to riding in the same boat with me? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean that at all. Don't misunderstand. Then you'd better get in if you want to go. This boat's starting to move. <laughs> Yeah, I, I... I better sit down. You certainly had. Look here, I, I... I want to apologize. That's quite unnecessary. This place is rather childish anyway, isn't it? Yes. Isn't it? But I've seen everything else, so I may as well see this. Here we go in the dark. <laughs> oh, what was that? Uh, one of the ghosts, I imagine. From a machine. It sounded like him laughing. There isn't anybody in the boat behind us, is there? Oh, I can't see. It's pitch dark. Listen, Miss... Uh, uh, Miss... My name is Andrews, Betty Andrews, if it's customary to exchange names in a place like this. Mine's Pendrel. Bob Pendrel. Did you say Pendrel? Yes. Do you know it? Oh, no, no, not exactly. It's, it's an unusual name, that's all. I... I don't want you to think I'm out of my mind, though I very nearly am. But I've got five hours to go. Just five hours. At the end of that time, either I'll have won $25,000 or, or else... Or else? Or else I'll be dead. <laughs> you know, I wish I'd kept you away from this boat. Well, there's nothing to get alarmed about. For you. I can't tell you much, but I had to tell somebody that or I'd have started yelling. There's just one other thing. Is there? In these places, they've usually got little dim-lighted rooms along the way. Yes, exhibits and things. Yes. Well... When we come to one, I'm going to get out of this boat and hide there. Just don't get alarmed, 
And don't tell anybody when you go out. Why should you do that? I think I see a light ahead. There is a light, but... Dim, too. That's all for the good. It's... Yes? We're coming around the corner. Look, I'm going to have company when I get off. A waxed dead man on a pile of straw. <laughs> oh, I hope I can stand these noises. Goodbye, Betty Andrews. I wish we'd met at a different time. Mind the boat! Here! What are you doing? Getting off, too. Don't be an idiot. What's the idea? You need looking after, Mr. Pendrell. And if we must hide, I suppose this is as good a place as any. I won't have it. Quick, quick. There'll be more boats along. Over behind that dead man on the straw. He'll hide us. Hurry. Now, Mr. Pendrell, in the queerest place I ever get into, please tell me what this is all about. I can't tell you. You said it yourself. If you don't tell somebody, you go crazy. (sighs) Maybe you're right. It's against the strict terms of the bet. But this is the last day. And I tell you, I can't hold out any longer. Lower your voice, lower your voice. There's a boat coming. I wonder... I wonder if you ever heard of my stepfather, John Destry. Yes. I imagine everybody has. He's a millionaire and... And I'm not. I'm just a chemist. An analytical chemist. Not very successful. Oh, if I'd had time, if I'd had money, I might have worked out a process that would have... Well, I think it would have helped in the war. But he's got money. Yes, he's got money. Well, my mother died years ago. This, this Destry's a, a big, white-haired, fine-looking fellow. You'd think butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. He's got an apartment in the East 60s, secretary, I never met her, valet, cook, that kind of thing. Well, he used to invite me there. I wouldn't go. Then he got hold of a book I had to have. A German work on chemicals. So I went. After dinner in that study of his, over the brandy... (laughs) Oh, my dear Robert... You're quite welcome to the book. Don't mention it. Oh, uh, what do you think of this brandy, by the way? <laughs> it's excellent, thanks. Yes, yes, I thought you'd like it. And now that we're all relaxed, comfortable after dinner, tell me something. Yes, Mr. Destry? You hate me, don't you? <laughs> Frankly, I do. And always have. Good, good. <laughs> then you'll be relieved to hear I've always felt the same about you. <laughs> but tell me something else. Did you ever know me to break my word? No, I never did. I'll give you that. I asked you, Robert, because uh, I want to make a little bet with you. That is, uh, if you have the nerve, which I doubt. Well, I'm afraid I can't afford to make bets. Uh, You were always careless with money, Robert. (laughs) Well, I've been thrifty. I saw that when your mother was alive. But you can afford to make this bet. Look here. In my desk. Well? $25,000, Robert. $25,000 in five $100 bills. And what would I have to bet against that? Your life. My life? There's the money in the drawer. Look at it. What wouldn't you give for that money? What wouldn't you give to have it for this precious work of yours that you're so fond of? And that you've failed in miserably. So far I've failed, yes. Oh, 
I've had a fairly good life as lives go. My heart isn't as good as it might be, but the doctors say I've... I'll last a little while yet. But before I go, there's one pleasure, one little exquisite thrill for me to experience. I want to commit a murder. Yes, I said a murder. My bet is that I can kill you within six months and that you can't stop me and that I'll never be punished for it. What do you say? Yes or no? I believe you mean that. Of course I mean it. And just how would you propose to kill me? Ah, that would be telling. You know, if I had time to think this thing over... There's no thinking it over. Now. Yes or no? Yes. <laughs> you must need the money badly, Robert. I do need it. But oddly enough, Mr. Destry, that isn't why I'm doing this. No? No. I want to show you you can't play the Lord Almighty and get away with it. Are you challenging me? Yes. You don't think I can do it? I know you can't. I, uh, we, we mustn't get excited, Robert. Uh, there will be conditions to the bet, you understand? What conditions? First of all, you'll never mention this matter to anyone. All right. That seems fair enough. You'll remain within the city limits of New York for six months. You'll spend at least one hour of every day walking the open streets alone. All right. You'll spend at least one hour every evening in your own room, alone. I may come to see you, or uh, <laughs> I may not. Mm. Trying to scare me already, are you? Finally, you'll write out a little note and give it to me. There's pen and paper on the desk in front of you. Write it now. Let's hear what I have to write before I do anything like that. You will write, I am a failure. You can't stop harping on that, can you? I am a failure. And this was the only way out. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. A suicide note? Yes. I intend to use it when I, uh, <laughs> operate. And if I won't write it? Ooh. Then there's no bet. All right, I'll do it. Hmm. It's now, uh, let's see, nine o'clock on the night of January the 10th. If you're alive and not in a madhouse... Does that go into the bargain, too? Yes. At nine o'clock on the night of June 10th, given those conditions, you will receive $25,000. Can't you hear the dice rattle, Robert? <laughs> you're playing with death now. I know it. Uh, aren't you going to finish your brandy? No, thank you. Oh, then uh, pour it back into the decanter. You heard me. Pour it back into the decanter. If you were as careful as I am, you, uh, you wouldn't be where you are now. That's right. Always be thrifty. I can promise you, by the way, that you'll always be perfectly safe as long as you're in this apartment. But that's the only concession I make. Oh, I notice your hands are steady uh, at the moment. I wonder what they'll be like a month from now. <laughs>
<laughs> so you were fool enough to make a bet with John Destry. Listen, Betty. I want to tell you what else happened the same night. I got on a Fifth Avenue bus and started to look through that book that Destry gave me. It was a book that I wanted about poisons. Well, just as I opened it, I felt something sharp prick my fingers. I looked down, and my hands were covered with blood. He had sewn safety razor blades in a line down the inside edge of the cover. Oh, no. A little white card fell out of the book, and I read it. It said, See how easy it is to take you off guard? Those razor blades aren't poisoned, but they might have been. Take warning. Betty, that was six months ago. Six months less five hours of careful, refined torture. And now, I've got only five hours to go. What's he done in the meantime? Nothing. Nothing? I don't understand. Nothing at all. That's the cleverness of it. He's left me waiting, waiting, waiting. Expecting something. Expecting it every hour of the day or night. Once at the laboratory where I work... I opened a box that I thought was from a chemical supply house. And a Mexican tarantula, one of those furry spiders about as big as your fist, ran out across my hand. It was a toy tarantula. He enclosed a card, asking whether I didn't admire it. Bob, this can't go on. I used to think I didn't have a nerve in my body. I could hold a test tube at arm's length absolutely steady for minutes at a time. Now look at me. Don't, please, don't. But the waiting's almost over now. Walking the streets, wondering who's behind you. Sitting alone at night, listening for every step on the stair. He's got very little time left now, and he's got to do something. The question is, what's he going to do? Well, maybe he doesn't mean it. Maybe maybe he's only doing it to scare you. And lose all that money? Oh, you don't know my stepfather. Listen. Huh? I, I don't hear anything. That's just it. There's no sound of running water. The boats have stopped. Then we're all by ourselves in here. All with him. Yes. Oh, Lord, how I wish I hadn't gotten you into this. Oh, I'm all right. Uh, Or at least I think I am. I thought I saw him in the crowd outside, but I couldn't be sure. I'm seeing him everywhere. Now, Bob, just a minute. Just tell me one more thing. Did you ever see Mr. Destry, I mean face-to-face, after that first night? Oh, many times. He came to see you? He came to my laboratory once, yes, but mostly I went to see him. And why? Because it was the only place in the world I could feel safe. He's promised that nothing should happen to you while you were in his apartment. Don't you see? It was part of a torture. Night after night he'd invite me, and I'd go right up until last night. Last night. We were in that study of his with the devil masks on the walls. And he was sitting behind the big mahogany desk. (laughs) My dear Robert, I'm pleased and uh, even touched to have you here on the last night before you, uh... <clears throat> before you... Uh... Why don't you say die and get it over with? Oh, well, let's not say die. No? <laughs> the clergy contend that we never die. We only change. Oh. Now, let that be a consolation for you. Uh, must you be going so early? There's that one-hour-at-home rule to our 
bet, if you remember. I remember. <laughs> You're keeping to the rules. Yes, and I mean to beat you at this if it's the last thing I ever do. The last thing I ever do. <laughs> That's an unfortunate choice of phrase, Robert. <laughs> My boy, you haven't a chance. Something's going to happen to you within the next 24 hours when you least expect it. Will you answer me one question? If I choose. Have you decided how you mean to kill me? I decided that six months ago. And you still think you can get away with it? It's a method which has never been known to fail. I give you my word of honor on that. Is it... Is it... Sudden? Yes. Uh, and no. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know what it is? Good night, Mr. Destry. I... I think I'd better be leaving. No, no, my dear boy. You mustn't go yet. Sit down. Pour yourself a glass of brandy. No, thanks. Uh, then perhaps you wouldn't mind pouring me a little. Uh, my doctor allows brandy, though I'm forbidden spirits. Uh, I, uh, I notice your hands are shaking uh, quite a good deal. They weren't like that six months ago, were they? <laughs> no, no. You were full of confidence then. Oh. <laughs> and it grieves me to see you waste tobacco by lighting a cigarette and putting it out immediately. Oh, it's no use lying to you. But I'm going to beat you just the same. You wouldn't like to back out now? After what I've been through? You'd still have your life. I'll keep it, thanks. Mm, that's very unwise of you, Robert. Still, you must decide. Oh, I was expecting my secretary a little later to dictate some letters. But now, um, I think I'll leave her a message that I've gone to bed and uh, turn in myself. Tomorrow is likely to prove an interesting day for both of us. Here's your hat, here's your briefcase, and let me wish you a fond, peaceful, and happy good night. <laughs> That was last night, Betty. I saw I had five hours to go. It's less than four hours now. If I can keep away from the old devil until nine o'clock. I wish those boats would start running again. Why? Because it's almost as spooky in here as a real old mill. I know. Even that wax dummy on the straw. Any minute now, You're I... expecting to see him move? So am I. Now, don't stand up. It doesn't matter. If the boats aren't running, we can hear anybody who comes along. I hope so. Do you think Destry's got in? Bobby can't have got in. He can't even be here. Why not? Because Mr. Destry told me... Mr. Destry told you? I'm his secretary. <laughs> you know, Betty Andrews, I'm sorry it was you who did this. Did what? You can't guess, can you? Oh, Bob, I didn't come here to trap you or spy on you. If that's what you're thinking, I swear I didn't. No. You only got me to tell you the whole story and lose my bet. I haven't heard a single word you said... Bob, please believe that. He didn't send you here, of course. No, no. And of course you never saw me at his apartment last no, night. No, I swear I didn't. I got there late. He'd gone to bed. I didn't even take off my hat or gloves before I left again. Don't you understand, Bob? I hate him, too. I want to see you beat him. You've got to beat him. You mean that? Look at me and see if I mean it. Betty, I almost believe you. 
You must believe me. And... Anything else? We better hide behind that dead man, Harry. Those boats have started up again. I wish I could tell you, Betty, what that means to me. Come on, come on, hurry. Wait a minute, you two. But... Stay just where you are. Where's that voice coming from? Along the tunnel, I think. But it's not Destry's voice. No, it's a man standing up in a boat. He's coming around the corner. I can see him now. Hurry. The old haunted mill, eh? My golly, if this ain't some place to make a pinch, I never heard of one. What do you mean, make a pinch? Just what I said. Your name, Robert Penrill? Yes. Who are you and what do you want? Police headquarters. You're to come along with me. I want to see you over in New York. About what? I wouldn't know, lady. But it might be about the murder of John Destry. Oh, no! Did you say the murder of John Destry? That's right. Somebody poisoned him last night with mercury cyanide. I wouldn't have got you at all, maybe, if the barker outside there hadn't thought the cops were after you to start with. Betty. Yes, Bob? He's beaten me. He hasn't beaten you. Oh, yes, he has. And I know now the weapon Destry was going to use in killing me. What weapon? It never fails. The electric chair. You mustn't talk like that. Don't you see? He never once intended to kill me in the way I thought. Are you coming quietly, Mr. Pendle? Just a minute. He's poisoned himself. But he's left evidence to show I did it. He's killing me the worst way possible. He's won the bet. The money doesn't matter now. If I'm in the death house for murder, what use have I got for all the money in the world? Let me introduce myself. My name's Mullen, Inspector Mullen. It's a pleasure to meet you, Inspector. It's a pleasure to be safe again. I've had you brought here to my office for a little quiet talk. You're in a jam, son, and I want you to realize how bad it is. You think I don't realize it? John Destry was poisoned with mercury cyanide administered in a glass of brandy. And only my fingerprints were on the glass besides his own. I can guess. Mr. Destry's body was found this morning lying behind the desk in the study. There was an empty glass with traces of brandy and cyanide. Now, we haven't had the full autopsy report, but the smell of that stuff is pretty distinctive. They tell me uh, you're a chemist, Mr. Penderell. That's right. The boys find that eight grains of mercury cyanide are missing from your laboratory. Where he visited me a month ago. And in your briefcase, which you took away from his apartment last night... He handed it to me. I remember. We found over a thousand dollars in cash. Now, take a look at this note. Did you ever see it before? Look. Yes. I wrote it. You admit that? Yes, yes, yes. It says... I was a failure, and this was the only way out. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. Where did you find it? Torn up in little bits. You started to write a confession, and then you couldn't face the consequences. But you shouldn't have left the pieces behind. You're infinite, my boy. Unless... Unless what? Now, if you'd like to confess here and now, and maybe we did a little deal about second-degree murder, Oh, Inspector, why bother to string me along? What do you mean, string you along? There's no second-degree murder on a poison charge. It's the death house or nothing. He saw to that. It's too bad you had to go and kill him, son. Didn't you know he had an aneurysm? A what? Fatal heart disease. 
He said that he had heart trouble, but... Heart trouble? His doctor says he couldn't have lived eight or ten months anyway. And you might have got something in the will. So that's why he did it. Did what? Killed himself. You still stick to that crazy story you told the boy? He's going to kill me, isn't he? With 3,000 volts of electricity. Inspector Mullen. What are you doing here, Sergeant? Didn't I say I wasn't to be disturbed? All the same, Inspector. I thought I'd better do it. There's a young lady here, a Miss Betty Andrews. I think you'd better see her. I'll see her when I'm good and ready. And I think you'd better see her, Inspector. We've just heard from Mr. Destry's lawyer. Well? He said that that young fellow there, Mr. Pendrell, inherits 25,000 bucks in Mr. Destry's new will. Did you hear that, son? Do you see what you'd have gotten if you hadn't gone and killed him? He was keeping his promise, that's all. A fine lot of good it'll do me now. But look, Inspector, I've just talked to the medical examiner, and he says there's no poison in Mr. Destry's body. Say that again? There's no poison in the old man's body. Somebody's kidding you. An empty glass with the smell of mercury cyanide and a dead man with a congested face behind the mask? What did kill him, then? Well, you'd like to listen to Miss Andrews, Inspector. She's right here now. I think you'd better listen, Inspector. I've been trying to tell you all afternoon. Go ahead, Miss Andrews. I've been over and over it. But until they got the medical report, nobody would listen. Can you tell us what killed John Dessery? Yes. Poison killed him. But the sergeant's just been saying there was no poison in the body. Inspector, will you listen? I was at Mr. Destry's apartment late last night. Well, so what? Uh, You didn't kill him, did you? The servant said he'd gone to bed. So I looked into the study to see if there were any instructions. Was Mr. Destry dead then? I don't know. I couldn't see his body because it was hidden behind the desk. I didn't even learn he was dead until late this afternoon. But I did see a full glass of brandy. Uh, A full glass, did you say? Yes. So I picked up the glass and poured the brandy back into the decanter. That's what he always made us do. And I didn't leave any fingerprints because I was still wearing my gloves. And that was the same glass you later found empty. But you still are not telling us what was the poison that killed John Destry. It was the poison in his own system. He worked out this plot to convict Bob Pendrell. Only just as he stretched out his hand to drink the cyanide... Inspector, I think I see it. It was his last great hour. He couldn't resist such gloating as he'd never known before. That's it. His heart wouldn't stand it, and he fell dead behind the desk. And I think, if you study the expression on his face, you'll find he died laughing. And so ends Will You Make a Bet with Death? Tonight's story of... Suspense. The part of Bob Pendrell was played by Michael Fitzmorris. Betty was played by Leslie Woods. John Destry was played by Nicholas Joy. And in supporting roles were Ted DeCorsia and Charles Slattery. Again next Tuesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Wartime. A story dedicated to the thrill of the nighttime. The hushed voice and the prowling step. Another adventure in... Suspense. William Spear, the producer, Marks Loeb, the director in the absence of John Dietz, and John Dixon Carr, the author, are collaborators on... Suspense.
This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, there you have it. Will you make a bet with death? He made a bet with death. Uh, November 10th? Am I right now? November 10th? You're correct. 1942. A John Dixon car story with lots of twists and turns. Um, really, really great writing on that. All right, Joe. So um, tell us uh, what you know about this particular episode now that we've heard it. Well, just a, a couple of little trivial things. There's a the person who's the signature voice of suspense in this episode is Ted Osborne, and he was in the first episode of Suspense, and is the only person to be on the last episode of Suspense twenty years later. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, the um, this play was also done, as I mentioned earlier, on Appointment with Fear uh, a year later, and Suspense also did it. In their hour-long version uh, in early 1948, that program is still missing. That one was written, uh, reworked by Les Crutchfield, who a lot of people would know for his uh, writing for Gunsmoke. And this story was also in the Suspense comic book in their first issue from 1949. The title was I Bet With Death. And it's a, it's a much longer story. That implies to me that it was the uh, hour-long version that they used for the story. And then 10 years after this broadcast, uh, Carr finally expanded the script and the story to become a novel called The Nine Wrong Answers. Hmm. So a lot of writers uh, will work on things as a radio program to, to, well, first of all, to get money for developing a concept, right? <laughs> And then gradually you may see it go onto the stage or television or into a novel. And uh, that was the case, though, what, what Carr did in, with this one. Okay. Uh, any uh, thoughts on the actors in the show and anybody, um, anybody we know there? Other than Ted DeCorsia, the, uh, one of the other people uh, in here is one of my favorites, Leslie Woods, who was... Uh, the first, oh, no, not the first. It was the Ann Williams from Casey Crime Photographer that I like the most. Not that Jan Minor is a slouch, but I thought Leslie Woods was really good in Casey. And you find her in, in some of these early uh, suspense programs and almost anything coming out of New York. Like she's in loads of inner sanctums. So she played Betty in this particular episode. And this. And then Ted DeCorsia was a very, very active radio stage movies and television actor and this one came from new york this one came from new york okay i i, I guess there's something i learned today because i always thought suspense came from hollywood and didn't come from well new york, that so. was that was one of the big changes when uh after vanda left and william spear started to get a concept for the show he he knew that if they were going to get any kind of attention they would have to move to hollywood now it, it turns out that a day after this broadcast is when uh spear married Kay thompson uh it would be the second marriage uh, for spear Kay thompson was a vocal coach and she had gotten a job at mgm working uh with all of their movie musical uh, personnel 
So that's one of the reasons why the show uh, moved to to Hollywood. But that represented a very big change for the nature of suspense, moving from these kinds of uh, occasionally brooding or complex mysteries to a show that would focus on very, very big stars. So we'll see that uh, in the show we picked for next week, which is the uh, uh, May 31st version of a script called August Heat from 1945. And by that time- We won't tease them too much and we can cover cover the the, the big star thing when we do the introduction to the next episode. All right. when, When they- when they hear the difference between the two of them, they will realize the very big change. Suspenses had gone really big time when it moved to Hollywood. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Okay, uh, Dr. Joe Webb, our special guest for today and for the next nine weeks of this program. Um, we will be back next Thursday with show number two. And uh, Dr. Webb just gave you a gigantic hint as to what it would be. Usually I like to leave people in suspense, but uh, that's okay. Uh, since we're doing suspense, we, we don't have to leave you in suspense this time. No, uh, we could leave them with suspense as opposed to with in it. suspense, yes. All right. So back next week with Dr. Joe Webb and the second in our series of great suspense radio programs. Until then, this is John Tefteller and the Good Old Days of Radio Show. Thank you, Dr. Webb for your appearance today and we will see you all again next week Tuesday for comedy and back Thursday for more uh, suspense until then goodbye goodbye